Common Room, a series of podcasts by the LSE Higher Education Blog. I'm Leanne Sequera, your host for this podcast. Today we will be discussing the Teaching Research Nexus the relationship and balance between teaching and research in academia. What are the tensions and complementarities, and how can academics successfully navigate this connection? I am an academic developer at the Eden Center for Education Enhancement and the editor of the LSEHE blog. And this is a topic that is particularly relevant as research-rich education is one of the strands of the LSE 2030 strategy and it's also related to several blog posts on the LSEHE blog around the value of higher education, precarity, the student experience, government regulations, etc. To discuss these issues and share their own personal experiences, we have with us Professors Dilly Fang and Simon Hicks. Dilly is the Pro-Director for Education at the LSE and Professor in Practice at the LSE School of Public Policy. Simon is the Pro-Director for Research at the LSE and the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science in the Department of Government. They are both very well known in their fields, having published papers in leading journals, written books, advised cross-sector organizations and government committees, and can be heard and seen providing expert commentary in multiple fora. Welcome, Dilly. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for Thanks. being with us Hi, today. Good to be here. Uh, great. So uh, one of the things we'd like to start off with uh, is looking a bit at the history of the LSC with respect to research and teaching. So Lionel Robbins, the noted LSC economist and chair of the committee that produced the, Robin Repo the Robbins Report in 1963, was unequivocal in his support for teaching. The teaching could be seen uh, and should be seen on par with research. And this was one of the key recommendations of the Robbins Report. In 2020, research remains in the ascendancy, though there is greater importance being given to education over the last few years. In the span of 60 years, how did we get here, with the balance considerably swinging towards research? Simon, you've been at the LSE for 23 years. You did your undergraduate degree here, your master's degree here. Is it fair to say you probably have the LSE in your DNA, if I might put it that way? How, do, how would you explain this shift? Um, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as a shift. Um, I think, you know, there's been a rise in research quality and research excellence and, and increased funding for research in that period. Um, when I was an undergraduate here uh, back in the 80s, it was clear that, you know, academics were far more interested in research than teaching. I actually think today... Um, academics here at LSE take teaching far more seriously than they did back then. Uh, and I think the real challenge for us now is not necessarily where the attention lies. I think, you know, we have top-notch academics who are outstanding researchers and also focusing on outstanding teaching. The challenge for us is to think about how we bring those two things together. And I think that's the new challenge going forward rather than seeing it as a trade-off between the two. What would you say about the balance at the school, though? Is it is there still a considerable slant towards research? Is that reflected in uh, 
things like the structure, the promotions, the way we recruit, what's rewarded, the school's reputation. I think, you know, if you talk to academics, and, you know, I still, I still carry on teaching first-year undergraduates, uh, and I always have carried on, on teaching throughout, um, and from the point of view of the academics, if you actually look at their workloads, it's quite clear that, that teaching takes a huge chunk of their time and effort, teaching undergraduates, masters, preparation for that teaching, meeting with students uh, as a mentor, supervising research, supervising dissertations. Um, so in terms of workloads, it's absolutely clear that our colleagues feel that a large chunk of their work is dedicated towards teaching. Uh, but it's true that when, in terms of recruitment, we are primarily focused on um, research quality um, and we're looking for the best and most outstanding researchers in the field when we're recruiting them. We compete globally for the best academics. Uh, and there, I think it's about comp competing over quality of researchers. You actually don't know when you're often appointing relatively junior colleagues. And overwhelmingly, our appointments are at the junior level, and I think they should be at the junior level because I think for a whole range of reasons, the next generation is always better than the previous generation. Um, and, of course, there's far more greater gender and ethnic diversity with the next generation coming forward. And, and plus, you know, you're getting a whole new talent pool, bringing new ideas to LSE. So, so I, I think we should carry on recruiting at the junior level. And at that level, you haven't got a lot of teaching background or experience to go on. So I think it's more appropriate that we take into account teaching quality in the promotions process rather than in the in necessarily the appointment process when we're appointing what are essentially our tenure track faculty but uh, you know dilly might disagree i don't dilly and i actually haven't talked about this particular <laughs> issue great <laughs> well well this is a good opportunity for that thank you uh, so so dilly if i'm if i might come to you now uh and and say this may be your second year at the lse but you've taught at and led education development units and programs of educational change at several research-intensive universities in the UK. So, one, would you concur with Simon in, in, in the time you've been here? Uh, and would you say the situation at the LSE mirrors what's happening in the sector? Yeah, very good, um, good questions. Uh, so, to pick up on Simon's point, I do agree with Simon that, that we have many individual colleagues across the school who are both great researchers and very committed to student education. And I have, it's a great joy for me to, to move around the LSE and, and meet many colleagues from different disciplinary backgrounds who, who I think that uh, description would apply to. However, I think I would distinguish somewhat between the positions of individual people and the sort of systemic processes that affect issues of status and opportunity. And uh, I've done some research um, with my colleague Claire Gordon um, uh, just a few years ago into, for example, the Russell Group in the UK, the research-intensive universities, um, and the situation there with regard to reward, recognition and status for educators vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, researchers, if you like, or, or academics who are predominantly um, uh, employed and promoted because of their research profile. And uh, from, our, from the evidence of that study and many other related studies, um, we have seen that there are many individuals who, who consider themselves to be scholars, who are academics, who often are involved in, in, in research of some kind, who 
nevertheless want to really commit to education as a priority and indeed in their career to become education leaders and have seen systemic um, barriers to recognition of A, the value of that kind of focus in their work and B, you know, technically opportunities for promotion and reward. Um, and if you, uh, just to finish that particular point, uh, if you just look at how people are promoted to the very senior roles in our universities, particularly in our research intensive universities, um, there is a variation. But if you look, for example, across the Russell Group um, uh, and indeed you know, wider, more widely across Europe in the research intensive universities, for example, you see that the vast majority of people who are uh, appointed to those very senior leadership roles, vice chancellors and the like, um, are almost always uh, research stars and people who have come through a kind of res uh, that recognition through research. So my work, and I'm sure we'll have more opportunities to talk about this, um, my work has been very much on trying to um, establish um, and develop um, much more nuanced descriptions of what research and education are and the way in which they relate so that we can understand the contribution that individuals are made in a much more nuanced and, and kind of contextualised way. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, okay. Uh, moving on to something that has uh, come up in quite a few fora at the LSE, uh, and, and that's about the tensions and complementarity, something you've already referred to, Dilly. So... Uh, what do you see as one of the key tensions and one of the key complementarities engaging, uh, in engaging in research and teaching as an academic? So preferably at a school level, but you know, even if you want to kind of talk about something that's sectorally kind of relevant or, or even internationally relevant. Dilly, you want to go first on this one? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Um, I'm quite happy to respond to that. Um, so I would say that uh, just picking up tensions, uh, first of all, I think there are tensions that are both personal for individuals and institutional, sort of operational, organisational tensions. Um, I think for individuals, it's well understood that every individual academic, educator, researcher, um, uh, has only so many hours in a week. Um, and we all know how important it is to get work-life balance right. We're really committed at LSE to improving um, well-being among staff as well as among students. Um, and it's very easy when you've got multiple priorities, like being a, a great researcher but also wanting to be a great educator to find that the hours that you have to work every week are just impossible because you don't want to let anybody down you want to really kind of do a great job across the piece um, and so from an individual point of view there can come and we've seen that very much in the research in the data that we've gathered through interviews through focus groups uh, there, there can absolutely come that experience where people just say, I cannot do everything. And so we have to prioritise, we have to understand what, an, what each individual in their given employment context realistically should be being asked to achieve. But looking at it from an uh, from an organisational point of view, how do we put together teams of people who are collectively achieving what the institution needs to achieve, great research and great education, 
without putting too much um, pressure, undue pressure on any one individual. So this is where, where sort of leadership and, and our, our great heads of department can take a real lead in each of their departments to get the balance right. And where also um, there are opportunities, as we've taken at LSE, to introduce more specialist roles, such as our um, what we call our education career track role, which goes all the way up to a, you know, a professorial uh, title, as it were, but uh, with a edu particular education um, focus. And so the balance between role types um, and, uh, and what we're asking any individual to do is, is really important. Um, but you mentioned also complementarities, if you like. So you started off by talking about the relationship between research and teaching. So I very particularly, uh, in, in work that I've I've uh, done, so for example, in my book, uh, A Connected Curriculum for Higher Education, very particularly talk, say, don't let's talk about research and teaching, let's talk about research and education. Because what we used to do in the past, we used to say, what is the relationship between research and teaching? And then we used to individualise it all the time. So, And then we would come up with aspects of um, the relationship between research and teaching, which were what we used to call research-led teaching. And we would then be a bit reductive in our thinking about the relationship by saying um, if I'm thinking about the relationship between research and teaching my focus should be on can I teach the things that I research about and can I keep students up to date with my latest research it's a fabulous thing to do however um, what students really benefit from is a whole educational infrastructure program design you know course design the way in which assessments are designed the way in which a community of scholars can engage with one another within a department um, that whole educational design piece um, can lead to a situation where students really feel connected with research really feel connected with researchers um, but it goes much beyond the individualised articulation of, I am a researcher, I'm a teacher, how can I put those things together? It's about a more organisational, holistic way of thinking, what does a really great education look like in the 21st century for all of our amazing students? That's, that's wonderful and that's <coughs> interesting. So if I understand correctly, you feel the kind of moving beyond this... Uh, articulation of research and teaching, the research teaching nexus, you see that there are greater complementarities at a possibly meso level for research and education yeah. that kind of result <coughs> in greater benefits and, and kind of for, for the education. So so thank you and, and that's 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 great to hear. I'm possibly kind of thinking about it more from an academics point of view. So how does kind of finding this balance or complementarities, you, mm. you mentioned research-led teaching, uh, how easily does research kind of flow into teaching from an academics point of view or education? Because yes, yeah. there, you know, when you're looking at it at a program level, it's beyond teaching. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'm sure Simon will have a good answer to this, but uh, I, my, my own view is that it varies a lot from individual to individual. Um, so some uh, academics uh, can very easily see um, that, that immediate relationship between their research and the teaching that they have, and that will often happen when, um, when academics perhaps are teaching on master's programmes, which include some real specialist areas, 
or, and, and of mm. course with PhD students, with doctoral students as well, um, specialist areas um, that they feel that, that are very close, have a very close synergy with their own research. I think that's true. I think there are others, depending on context, who may be, um, uh, maybe just for sort of practical reasons of having to, you know, deliver a curriculum, as it were, are being asked to teach in areas mm. that are not close to their own research. And so they're having to sort of stretch their... Um, that, that relationship uh, mm -hmm. and, and maybe think think about it in a rather different way. I'm sure Simon has some thoughts about this, though. Thank you. Simon, yes. Well, let me, I mean, a few things there. I mean, I agree a, a lot with what uh, Dilly has said there, and I'll, come, I'll talk about the education side in the classroom uh, in a sec, but the first thing I think to, to add to what uh, Dilly said is about the, the tension we face here and, and the external environment in which we operate as a higher education institution and the careers of our academic faculty. I mean, our academic faculty are the, our, our core resource. I mean, that's why, you know, students want to come here. It's why we get our research funding. I mean, that, that uh, keep maintaining world-class academic faculty is the one thing we have to carry on being able to do at the LSE. Um, and, and there's two really difficult external challenges for us. One is British-based and one's global. The British one is an external regulatory environment of the REF and the TEF. I mean, you know, this is like the one part of government not talking to another part of the government in that, yeah. you know, you've got the, the REF is saying, you know, we're going to reward universities for outstanding research and only for outstanding research. And the TEF is saying we're going to re reward universities for outstanding teaching, not education, mm -hmm. outstanding teaching. And, 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 you know, the universities then have these external incentives on them. And, you know, Dilly's in charge of the TEF, I'm in charge of the REF. You know, in monitoring on the REF, the incentive structure is to produce world-class academic research papers and books in top journals and to spend as much time and effort doing that so we can carry on doing that. Um, and the TEF is to say we need to spend more time and attention in the classroom, providing feedback, uh, marking, assessing, thinking about curriculum, meeting with students and so on. But there's a limited number of hours in the day. And facing that external regulatory environment, what a lot of universities are doing is dividing up their academic careers into people who are teaching-based people and people who are research-based people. So ironically, you know, we're heading away from Robbins's idea because of mm. this regulatory environment, mm. which is forcing both within universities and I fear between universities a division in academic careers between people who are primarily researchers who do a bit of teaching and people who are primarily teachers who might do a bit of research. Um, we've tried, we have created the educational career track at LSE and, and a career structure for that. But I do worry about this being a schism within an academic discipline. And I think this is an unintended consequence of where this regulatory environment is pushing us. Now, add to that a global academic job market that we operate in um, and in that global academic job market I mean we spend a lot of our time fighting off offers from other top universities for our top faculty and we want to hold on to them and of course this is having a dramatic effect on salaries and there's there's some difficult gender dimensions to that as well um, but it does mean that you know our top research stars what gets you those jobs at Stanford and Princeton and Harvard and those offers from those places is being a world-class researcher not being a world-class teacher I mean, I might not like that. Dilly might not like that. But that, unfortunately, is the world in which we, we live in. And that's the world in which our, our senior world-class academic faculty are living in. So if we say to them, you know, it's all about you 
getting outstanding teaching scores. Why are you not getting outstanding teaching scores? And you spend more time in the classroom. And you spend, uh, you know, they will say, oh, thanks, I'm off to Stanford. So we need to be very careful about how we balance this. I think we, we, sh we do, and I think there has been a renewed emphasis on education here, and I think that's really important, um, and I fully support that. Um, I also think it's worth bearing in mind that we actually have three different career structures at LSE now. We have the sort of mainstream, if you like, the core academic tenure track faculty, which is both research and teaching contract. We have the ECTs, which is primarily teaching contract, but doesn't preclude research. And we have research contracts. And if anything, it's the researchers that are on research-only contracts who certainly feel like they're second or third-class citizens in this place. So, so, so it's, it's a bit... <laughs> I want to just correct, in a sense, a little bit of the sense that, you know, it's, there's all this focus on research. Well, it doesn't feel like that if you're on a temporary research contract in one of our research centres, for example, because they say, we're second-class citizens compared to your core academic faculty, who, who are the stars because they have both research and teaching in their contracts. So, and then when it comes to then thinking about bringing research and teaching together in the classroom, um, what Dilly and I, I think it's really... It's been a joy, actually, to work alongside Dilly in this aspect because one of the, I came into this role with a commitment that we should try to bring together much closer research and education. I've been teaching here for a long time, um, 23 years at LSE, and before that I was at Brunel University. And all the way along, I've tried to think about creative ways to actually get students involved in doing their own research. And whether that was first-year undergraduates, final-year undergraduates, master's students, executive ed, uh, students it's all, I always thought that it's so critical that students experience what it's like to do a piece of their own research, no matter how small, no matter how large, because you cannot be, I think, a proper consumer of research and advanced research in the social sciences unless you actually personally experience what it's like to do some research. And I think that's really critical. Yeah. And we should make that part of our core USP at the LSE as a world leading research institution. I agree with that. Absolutely. Great. So, so that thank you, Simon. That's quite interesting that y you focused on kind of relatively, not relatively, they are structural kind of issues. Uh, also, this uh, idea of second-class citizens and, and researchers feeling that way, because that's often the rhetoric we hear on the teaching side as well. And uh, interestingly, the kind of division of labor that has come across in a, a false schism, as you, as you say, uh, so, so hopefully, as we as we talk about this and we discuss these issues, we kind of are able to provide some insights into, as you've already done, uh, how how we might look at approaching these things, as well as what it's meant for, meant to you in your careers. So, to talk about uh, the next question, which is drawing on your personal experience, uh, how did you navigate this research teaching nexus? in your respective careers? I mean, I've always, of course, on a standard academic type contract, had a, had a teaching role. I mean, I love teaching. I, I find it really exciting. I also find it helps with the research in terms of generating new... If you actually have to teach research and teach cutting-edge research, not your own, just your own research, but other people's research, you, certainly, you start to learn what some of the key aspects you really key takeaway points key insights are much better than actually having to just read it yourself i also think that what i find most exciting in a sense at my stage of my career i like teaching first year undergraduates and exec ed 
uh, partly because you know they're, they're both bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It's it's the the first-year undergrads are so excited by the opportunity to learn about new knowledge, new ideas, and new things, and and the same with exec ed. So in a sense, I find it much easier to be research-led teaching almost at that level. Uh, because then you're, re you're able to really introduce new innovative ideas about how to teach, what you're teaching, why you're teaching it, and, and how research works with that. And all the way along, when I've taught, I've always taught a mix of sort of first-year type intro courses and more advanced level courses. And particularly in the more advanced level courses, I've always tried to have research as part of that teaching. So, for example, the course I used to teach here at LSE was on um, EU politics. Uh, to master's students and one of the things we did um, and I think it was one of the first to do that is they had to do a piece of research as part of their of this this course and what they had to do was was write an analytic narrative about the passage of a piece of EU legislation so they had to go and collect the documents interview people and tell a story about the passage why it ended up where it did what the preferences of the different actors were applying some of the the analytical tools they learned, some game theory and things like that they learned on the course to really see how actually some of the research they were learning really applied in practice to a series of case studies. And if I can just come back with another question to you, Simon. So looking at your uh, career, uh, casting an eye back, if you will, has there been a time when you've had to make a decision and kind of prioritize either research or teaching? All the way along, I have to be honest and say the priority has been research. Um, but that doesn't mean that, te you know, there hasn't also been an effort to really do deliver excellent education as best I could. Um, but primarily, if there ever had to be a trade-off, it would be the time spent preparing teaching that would suffer. Uh, and I think that's a challenge a lot of top researchers have, particularly when you've got a you're working in collaborative projects. You've got to turn around research for collaborative projects with tight timetables, or data analysis that doesn't work out, and you've got to kind of keep at it and spend time doing it. And you know, various points in my life, pulling all nighters to get things done, to deliver on research projects or grants or collaborative work. You know, apart from sleepless nights before lectures f to first year undergraduates when I first started teaching, I can't say that I've I've ever had sleepless nights preparing teaching, whereas have I have had long nights preparing research. So in that sense, the work life balance has taken a hit more because of research commitments than teaching commitments. Thank you, thank you for that honesty, uh, Dilly. If if I could ask you in your career, numerous universities, numerous roles, some which are very new to universities. And then, you know, you're kind of trailblazing in, in that sense. Uh, how have you dealt with, with the issues that come up? How have you struck a balance? Yeah, good, good question. So um, unlike many people who uh, work in higher education, I actually started my career in further and adult education. So I actually think I draw quite a lot of my ideas from some of the experiences I had back then. Um, working on courses with um, with either sixth formers, you know, sort of A-level a students, or adult returners to education who are going to uh, who are accessing uh, or wishing to access universities, uh, where there is more flexibility in the curriculum, um, and uh, really designing um, opportunities for students even at that relatively um, early uh, developmental stage, if you like, in, in, in whatever their careers would become, um, to get out there, investigate, work with um, uh, sort of collaborators in the community. And so, so so one of the things I taught was, was communication, so communication theory, but also communication studies. 
Um, and uh, this is often uh, a subject that is referred to as being one of these sort of soft subjects, if you like, which is absolutely not the case because it's got a very strong theoretical framing and there's some very um, demanding um, sort of practical and, and uh, intellectual skills that need to be developed. Um, so I had students going out uh, at the age of 18, going out into the local community, identifying a kind of commissioning um, uh, body like the local doctor's surgery for example who needed a new communications artifact to be developed um, in order to uh, move forward with their own particular organizational agenda and the students had to go through a whole series of investigations and um, and uh, allegiances and connections with those um, those external partners in order to create something which then had to be evaluated and promoted and so on and, and there was a lot of sort of peer review involved in that which is another aspect of, of research that we under we underplay I think in our educational design um, peer review um, and I think the fact that I had su I saw such transformational learning for individuals given space to get out there and imagine something um, investigate, collaborate, connect and communicate to outward audiences. I saw such great examples right you know, very early on in my in my career that in through all of the, the sort of academic and, and higher education roles that I've I've held, um, I've been very committed to trying to encourage everybody to see the additional possibilities um, outside the standard we do some lectures and we do some seminars or classes and we we, we ask our students to sit exams or write term papers or whatever um, because I've seen if you are more creative about it just how transformational that can be and how very deeply um, students can develop intellectually as well as personally and practically as it were through those sorts of experiences I don't see a trade-off between sort of intellectual depth in the more traditional teaching at all um, and these more active you know proactive outward looking tasks um, that are more similar to the sorts of things that researchers have to do. Thank you. Thank you very much.